Coming to Twin Cities Church. If you are visiting with us for the first time, my name is Lawrence. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. George Stagg and I are both been preaching here through Matthew and through Mark and have been alternating weeks. And so last week George was here, this week I'm here, next week George is here, I'm in St. Paul. And we're wrapping up this series here on the life and teachings of Christ. And it's, re- excuse me, it's really been a timely series in so many ways. Um, you know, there's, it's been a really chaotic and hectic few weeks in a lot of ways. Election season, the build up to the election, now the aftermath of election, all of these things have just, it, and to be able to think and talk about Jesus is so refreshing. <laughs> in the midst of all of the craziness of life and just the rhetoric of our world and the loudness that those voices speak, to be able to kind of hear the words of Christ calling to us still and offering us life in this alternative kingdom, a different way of living in a world that is so easily tossed to and fro, it, it's, it's been life-giving. So if you have your Bible with you, open it up to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be wrapping up really the Sermon on the Mount today, the last kind of section of the teachings. So if you don't have your Bible with you, we'll be going through it up on the screen. But if you have it with you, Matthew 7 We're going to be looking at 24 through 29. So here's the words of Christ. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So here we have the, the conclusion to this all. So Christ has just finished going through this amazing teaching, this amazing vision of what it looks like to live in his kingdom. Right? The good news of the gospel, the king has come. And he talks to them and he comes to the people and he says, right, I have brought my kingdom to you. There's nothing you need to do to get access into this kingdom, but rather right where you are, if you are poor, if you are rich, I bring this kingdom to you. You can have it now. I've made possible a way. The kingdom is here. All of these things. And then he finishes, right? If you've heard these words and you follow them, you'll be like a man who builds his house on a rock. And in this imagery of houses, in this imagery of storms, Right, it's, it's very appropriate because he's really speaking to our fundamental needs and, and really to our fears. You know, we, we talk about storms and you talk about homes. I mean, very few things bring up as much fear for most of us as those two things when a storm comes through in our homes. And in a lot of ways, what's the most revealing about our lives is really what we're afraid of losing. Right, when you think about what am I afraid of getting washed away in a storm really speaks volumes. What are we most afraid of? Carl Jung, great psychologist, right, wrote about this, and he kind of argues that what you are most afraid of losing 
right, is really what you love the most. Because you can ask people, right, what do you love? And they'll tell you more or less the right things. Right? They'll say, I love God. I love my family. I love, you know, okay, that's fine. But what are you most afraid of losing? Like, what would cause you to not be able to get out of bed in the morning if this happened? What's your greatest nightmare? Right? He, Jung argued that the nightmare reveals a lot more about what we love than just asking people what they love. Like, if you lost this, right, game over, I'm done. Well, it reveals to us, right, what we've been investing in all of this time, right? It reveals where I've been putting all of my hope, what I've been hoping will be there for me, what I'm hoping will last, that this of anything, right, will be what will last. If it's a marriage, if it's children, if it's work, I mean, this, this has got to last, right? And if it doesn't, oh, right, I don't know what I'll do. Because we're all building something, and that's what Christ is really speaking to. Right? We're all building these houses. We're all building little kingdoms. We're all working really hard at building stuff in our life. For many of us, and you're at this stage of life where you're just starting, or many of us are at the end of it, but building careers, and that's, that occupies a lot of our thoughts. Right? Is this the right career for me? Is this not? Should I make this change? Should I not? I mean, building this legacy, building a resume, building something that is lasting and of value, building families. I mean, I don't know how many babies have been born in the last year. should probably actually add up those numbers. Right? I feel like it's been a lot in this church alone. I mean, people are building families or, or people are, are just starting down the path of even starting to look for a spouse or we're building things, building Homes, building retirement portfolios. Many of us are in that stage of life where we're looking now at what do I have to put away? What do I have to keep? Right? And we worry about the stock market. You worry about all these things because I need this to be there for me. Many of us are working hard at just building community. Right? I mean, I, I know in the life of our church, right, where house church is so central, we work really hard at that. You work hard at that. Right? You invest in the lives that are around you. You are investing and in trying to build a community that looks like Christ. That's exhausting work. Right? But we're building those things. We're working at that things. We're building a church. We're working at this. We're trying hard. Right? Many of you sacrifice and give and just work at building up Twin Cities Church even. We have these things that we're all working for. We're all building and they're not wrong things. Those are good things to be building. Those are good things to be working for. Working for a career, working for a family, building up the community, the household of God. I mean, these are good things. We're all doing them. And when those good things that we're working so hard on are threatened, or at least we perceive them as threatened, we react. We react usually violently. We react in anger. We get upset when those things get threatened. And I think that's really what's reflected so much in the last several, well, really months, just amplified in the last few weeks politically, right? There's been a lot of reactions because there's threats. I feel threatened. 
I feel like my neighborhood is threatened. I feel like my friends are threatened. I feel like the nation is being threatened. I feel like, right, when we feel threats, we react. And we oftentimes, right, lash out. It's not necessarily wrong to react in those ways. It's pretty natural. It's not wrong to grieve. It's not wrong to mourn when we lose things, right? When your house gets blown down in a storm, right? When we had a tree go into our cabin. I mean, that's, it's not wrong to be upset in those things. It's not wrong to rejoice when we succeed in getting the things that we've been working so hard for. It's not wrong to rejoice with the birth of a child. It's not wrong to rejoice with new careers. It's not wrong to rejoice with that. And it's not wrong to grieve when we lose those things. But both are just ultimately short-lived. Right? The wisdom literature of the Bible speaks to this pretty profoundly and universally. Right? That there's this time and a season for everything. Everything passes away. The season of life that you're in is a good season of life, but it will pass. What you've been building, what you've been working for is not going to last. <laughs> no matter how successful you are in your career, it's not going to matter. No matter how much you save for your retirement, it won't be enough. No matter how hard you work at building a church or building a community, at some point, it will fizzle and someone else will get all the credit for your hard work and labor. Like Nothing you do ultimately will matter. It will be washed away. That imagery of on the sand and the waves and the strength, that is life. These things will wash away. That's what wisdom literature tells us, which frees us. But Christ gives us, right, this picture, this alternate way of living where he says, if you want to be truly wise, you can build something, you can put your hope in something that will not wash away. That there's an option out there. Your career will fade, your houses here will fade, your families will fade, but there's one thing that will not. There's one house that will never fall down. There's one house that will never be destroyed, and it's the house of God. And his instructions right, are very direct and very clear. And in fact, right, the, the author of Matthew here tells us this, the crowd walks away just kind of astounded at Jesus. That he just says this so straightforward. You've heard these words. If you will do them, then you will have a house that will never fall, never falter. So who is this guy? <laughs> who can say that? Right? No one can say that. No one can teach with that kind of authority and say, here it is. If you do this, then you are wise. If you do this, you will have a house that will never fail. He gives no other option. Jesus does not just give advice. He doesn't just give us a system. He doesn't just give us a philosophy. You should do these things. No, here it is. You will either do what I say and you will be in my kingdom, which will never end, and you will have this house that will never fall, or you will not. And that's it. And everyone walks away astounded. Will we live in his kingdom? Will we not live in his kingdom? 
So we have to stop and pause, right? I mean, this is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So if you haven't been here for before this, but even if you have, right? We, well, what is the teaching here, right? What is it that we're supposed to do? What have we heard? And what am I supposed to do so I can be in this kingdom, that my house will stand forever? And the teachings have been straightforward. Christ has called us to live in his kingdom. He's called us to live lives that look radically different than the world around us. He's called us to live with radical love and peace where the poor are blessed and the poor and power, right, is found in weakness, right? He's called us to live in this reality. And with that, right, he's given us just two instructions. It's very straightforward. We will love God and we will love our neighbor. And that's it. It's like, this is the law. Remember, that's what Christ said. This is the law. This is all of it summed up. Love God and love your neighbor. He tells us to live a life like he did, loving God, the God who came to earth and who reconciled all things to himself. We're to love him, the one who made peace through the cross, the one who first loves us, the God who brought the kingdom to us, who opened up the way for all of us, who gave himself freely to us, who lived the life that we were meant to live, but right, rather died for the life that we actually live, this God we're supposed to love. We're supposed to trust. We're supposed to rest. We're supposed to trust in him, put our hope in him, love him. That's it. And as we love God, we're to love our neighbor. I'm to love my neighbor. I'm to love my enemy. I'm to love my brothers and sisters. I'm to love. I'm to love people I'm to look at people and see that Christ has redeemed and reconciled them to himself and to me. I'm to identify with them no matter what state they're in. I'm to rejoice with those who are rejoicing and weep with those who are weeping. I can identify with my enemy. I can love my enemy. I can love and identify with my brothers and sisters. I'm to wish the best for people no matter what their wishes are for me. Even if they wish me harm, I wish them the best. I'm to pray for people. Not just my brothers and sisters who pray for me, but I'm to pray for people who curse me to my face and out on the internet. I'm to pray for them. I'm to bless people and I'm to bless the very people who are taking away everything from me. Right? I'm to protect and care for the very ones who would oppress me and who would not protect me. We are to love God and love our neighbor. That's it. And Jesus says, he ends the sermon here with, we will either believe Jesus is who he said he is and we will do these two things. Or we will not believe that he is who he said he is and not do these things. We will answer his call. We will accept the invitation and live in that kingdom where these things are reality, where we pray for the people who curse us, where we bless the people who hurt us, where we love and trust God more than we trust ourselves, or we won't. We either live under his rule in his kingdom or we will live in this empire here and live under our own rule 
Those will be the two options he gives. However, right, <laughs> he gives it very straightforward and clear. He says this is it. But however, our modern experience of Christianity is not those things. Right? We don't live in that reality. It doesn't feel that stark. Right? We don't feel that same call. We don't catch that. We don't walk away from Christ's teachings the way that the crowd did with marveling at the authority of the guy who's calling us, who's telling us to either do this or don't do this. Right? We look at Christianity as pretty optional or there's gradations to it. Because for modern Christianity, it is, seems to be it, neither of those two extremes, but somewhere in the middle, where we either believe in Jesus and don't obey him, right? That seems to be the majority of our experiences and the majority of the experience in the church, where you believe in Jesus, but you do not obey. We cling to faith. We cling to the ideas of forgiveness and grace and we just rationalize away all of the commands, right? And say, thank God that Jesus freed me from the law, right? Thank goodness that I am forgiven because I am such a sinner. Thank goodness he has forgiven me so much and I can cling to that fact and I don't have to worry about how I live and how I work and what I do with my money and what I do with my free time or how I, any of my action, how I raise my kids. Thank goodness he's forgiven us all. I don't have to follow him. Or we obey him without ever believing in him. Right, where we just say, I live the life that I know God wants. I've read my Bible, I've gone to church. I know what he needs. I know what he's demanded. I know the law and I live it. I do it. Desperately trying to please him. Working very hard to build his kingdom. Doing the things that he's called me to do. We want to do what we think God wants us to do. We want ultimately what we think God is going to give us for working so hard rather than actually want him. In the one case, right, if we believe in Jesus but we don't obey him, we don't follow him, right, Jesus is our savior but he's not our king. If you just obey Jesus without believing in him, Jesus is your boss, right? He's your example but he's not your king. He's not your savior. He's not your Lord. It's only when belief and obedience actually come together. Right? This is what Christ has been calling us again and again and again. It's belief and obedience together where we actually experience kingdom life. When we actually experience freedom. When we actually experience hearts that get moved. Natural sinful reactions that actually get changed, right? Like it's only when we believe and obey. It has to be both. True belief is only made possible when we step into obedience. If there is no obedience to the call, there can't be belief. I mean, what are you, what are you believing? 
if you will not obey him, if you will not do what he has called you to do, right? Christ tells this all the time to Peter, to John, to everyone. You know, if you love me, obey my commandments. If you won't obey his commandments, right, what do you believe? We have to be positionally in a place where faith and belief is possible. Otherwise, I will never actually believe in him until I take a step of submission to him, right? Obedience to him. Or I actually have to say, I think he's king. I don't know that this is gonna go well, but he's called me to do this. I will do this. Until I have taken that step, I will never be in a position of faith in him, trust in him. And true obedience, right, is only made possible when it comes out of faith and belief. If there's no faith, if there's no belief in the one who has called you, you're just going through the motions. You're just trying to please them. You don't get the point, (laughs) right? It's like a father and a child, right? You can just do what your parent asks you to do. But that's not why they asked you to do it, right? I'm not asking you to clean your room because I want your room cleaned. (laughs) I'm asking you to do this because I want you to have a heart that does what is right, right? I want you to become someone. The rules aren't there for you to do them. The commandments are there to change you, to give you life, to give you hope, to give you a life that looks like mine. It's not about if you do them or if you don't. Just blindly obedient, following the rules is just trying to please. It's trying to get something from them, right? As a child, I did this easily, right? It came naturally. (laughs) If I do what my parents say, then I will get rewarded. That's not what it means to have faith. If I actually had faith in my parents, Right? I do what they ask of me because I love them and I trust them, not because I think it's going to give me a reward. So, which are you? Right? Which am I? Which are we? This is what Christ is calling us and confronting us with because we have to do both. We read words like the Sermon on the Mount, we read the teachings, we go through the Gospels, and part of it we love, and part of it we don't. And we feel really easily confronted with some. Which is harder for us? Do you lack obedience in your life? Submission? To use a really (laughs) ugly term in our culture. Are there areas of your life where you are very content doing them on your own? Right? I believe Jesus has forgiven me. I believe I have life. But then... These things in my life, I'm very satisfied with my own rule over them. If it comes to my career, my money, raising my kids, right? what, what are those things in your life that you have a very hard time submitting to Christ in, giving over to him? Are you smug? Are you a smug Christian, a condescending Christian? One who believes in Jesus but then looks down at anybody who is in opposition to you. <laughs> right, the last few weeks have been very revealing, I think, in a lot of ways. 
for myself too, in my own heart, but it is, you know, because I hear that refrain, I can't imagine why someone would have voted for whoever. Like, really? You can't imagine why? What a position of arrogance. Right, get off of your horse, hold on. Why, why can't you imagine that? Can you not love your enemy? Are you refusing to love your enemy? Do you wish your enemy harm? Right? Are you so confident that Jesus is forgiving you that you don't feel it's necessary to love others? For many of us, we lack obedience. For many of us, we just lack belief. Right? I mean, is this you? You do all the right things. Right? But suffer all kinds of worry all kinds of anxiety, all kinds of fear. You are desperately trying to please people, trying to hold everything together, trying to keep everyone happy, trying to just keep this little thing going. And you just feel like you can't. And you're always stretched thin on the margins. And you just gotta get a break. Right, where you feel like, I've just been doing so much. I'm constantly doing so much. I'm just exhausted. I'm tired of this. Right? Do you view yourself as Christ? Are you functionally trying to be Jesus? Do you really believe that you are that important? That this world is going to stop revolving if you stop working? I mean, this is what I struggle with. I don't struggle with the lack of obedience. I've always been submissive, right? I just try so hard, right? I get into the mode of I am working and working and working and trying to keep everybody happy and you just, you can't do it. And you get to the point of like, when is somebody, please, just gonna give me some recognition? Like, whoa, why do I, what? No, get off of your throne, buddy, right? Like, the only one who's getting recognition in here is Jesus. Do we even want Christ's simple call to be that simple. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in The Cost of Discipleship argues for this too, this idea of like that most modern, we don't even want the call of Christ to be true. Do we want it to even just be that simple? Follow me. Or do I want the call to not really be that easy? I want it to be complicated. I don't want to just simply follow you know, I've got a lot of commitments. I've got a lot of things going on, Jesus. Like, I want you to be my Lord. I want you to be my Savior. I'm even fine with you being this distant king who's going to punish everybody and who's going to reward people. Just let me live my life. Or am I at the point where I just want to be able to follow him? Take it all. <laughs> take my family. Take my work. Take everything. I just want you. The words of Christ to us are nothing new. If you've studied your Bible, if you've been around the Bible for any extended period of time, these words of Christ are not new. God has been speaking this purpose to man since he created them. Trust me. Right in the garden. Trust me. I'm God. You're not. I have good for you. Only good for you. Trust me. I'm going to give you a commandment. It's for your good. Will you trust me? He keeps speaking that word again and again. Trust me. 
And from the moment he created someone else to be loved, right? It's love them. Here's a wife, love her. Here's children, love them. Here's foreigners, love them. Right? Here's immigrants, love them. Here's slaves, love them. Like, here, love people. The, the message is nothing new. Scripture is so clear on this. All the way through, the commandment for us, the picture for life, the life we are meant to live is nothing complicated. Trust God, love him, delight in him, and love others. So how can we do it? Because the Bible also then is just this long, long history of people failing to do either, and which is us. This is why our modern experience of the church is neither of those extremes. It'd be helpful if it was those two extremes. If we just had radical communities of faith that loved God and loved neighbors, and then we had others that just rejected Christ. So no, that would make life a lot simpler. But it's hard to do this. How do we have any confidence that we can succeed? Right, that I can do this, that we can do this, that we could be a community that actually followed Christ's commands, that did what he said, that put together belief and obedience. Dallas Willard argues, right, how do we make the move from having faith in Jesus to having the faith of Jesus? Like Paul says in Galatians. Because I got a lot of faith in Jesus, <laughs> How do I start to have the faith of Jesus? How can I actually start truly believing in Jesus, believing in God the way that Jesus believes in God? How can I start actually loving my neighbors the way that Jesus actually loved his neighbor? And it seems that the text here, Matthew, and then the rest of the Gospels, the rest of the Bible, it's pretty clear on this. This starts when we start to see who Jesus actually is. When we see whose house this really is that we're building. When our response to Jesus is the response of the crowd. Wow. This is somebody with authority. This is not just a teacher. This is not just a man giving advice. This is not just even someone who will die in my place. That the reality is this is his world. This is his house, not mine. That he cares for this world more than I ever will. That he cares more than I ever will, than you ever will about the poor. That he cares more about you than the refugee. That he cares more about the persecuted and the minority than any of us ever will. He cares more about the rural and the forgotten laborer and worker than anyone ever will. He cares more about my family and my children than I do. He loves and cares for my wife more than I do. He loves and cares for our church far more than I do. He cares more about me than I do. This is his world. These are his people. Everything in my life is his. We are not our own, 
right? To quote the Westminster Catechism, right? Like, I am not mine. I belong to God. And he showed up. That God who we belong to showed up in human history and died for, the, for us and for the world and for everything in it. We belong to a king who made peace. We belong to a king who came into this world and who died, who reconciled all things. I can love God and love my neighbor because he's loved enough. He's loved enough for me. I will never love as much as he did, which is the good news. He's loved enough for me. He's loved enough for the people who can't love. He's loved enough. He's loved the unlovable people in our society more than I ever will or ever could. Belief and obedience come together when we actually see Jesus resurrected and seating on his throne. Right? That's when I believe and obey. When I see the resurrected Messiah, when I, see the he, when I see him as more than a teacher, when I see him as a vindicated king. Now, that doesn't mean, right, for one second that we don't actually care for the needy and the poor and the oppressed and the immigrant and the worker and anyone in the society. Right, because that rhetoric gets thrown around a lot, like Jesus is still on his throne type of thing. Well, of course that calls me to love people. Of course that calls me to love my family. I care about what my king cares about. I care for the ones that my king identifies with. I care for the ones that my king blesses. Of course. None of that will affect. In fact, it will drive me if I see him resurrected and seated on his throne. It will drive me to identify with those who my king identifies with the ones that he says are blessed in his kingdom. So we will do this, we will, we will love our neighbor, but we will do it as a people who have hope. We will do it as a people without fear. We will generously live because we are generously loved. When I see Christ and I see the amount of love that is poured out for me and for others and for this world, I will love others knowing that I can't love them as much as Jesus did. And his love covers us all. So we love God and we love our neighbor as a people who have hope and have confidence, not as a people who are desperately striving to earn a place in his kingdom. So we ask ourselves, right, back to those belief and obedience, you know, like are we are we having a hard time showing love? Are we having a hard time showing empathy? Are we quick to believe? Do we have no problems believing in Jesus? Believing in who he was, believing that he's died on the cross and that he shed his blood for us and that he's forgiven us and he's given us grace. But I'm having a really hard time, right, loving my neighbor. It's hard for me, right, to really do anything. It's hard for me to open up my life to his church, to open my life up to him, to give up these things to him? Or are you tired and exhausted? 
right? You feel stretched thin. I can't keep this going. I got, I'm working too many hours. I've got too many connections. I got too many people pulling on me. I got too many kids. I got too much going on in my life. Right, Christ calls both of us. He calls both of us to get off of his throne and experience life. It's exhausting being the king. It's exhausting being Jesus. If you're experiencing that anxiety and that just exhaustion of life, let Jesus. Let Jesus run your life. It's what he wants to do. It's what he died to do. Get off the throne. You're not too busy. You can do this because Christ has done this. Give him your life. Give him your stress. Give him the work that you're doing. See that he's the one who does the work for you. You're not building anything. He's building it. Join him. It's a lot different. Like I've been a head coach and I've been an assistant coach in sports. (laughs) It's a lot different. Assistant coach, all gravy, right? You just get to show up to practice and, oh, run a few drills, no problem. This is great. Game goes bad. No, no, not my fault. It, it's a lot easier to join someone else, especially when they're really good, especially when they're really loving, especially when they're perfect. I want to join that work. I'm tired of trying to be my own, right, boss, my own savior, my own king, because it's exhausting. I've been a head coach, too. It's exhausting. It's fun when you get the glory, when your team does well. It's hard when it doesn't go well. It's hard trying to manage and keep everybody happy and parents and everything else. You just can't. It's exhausting. And you eventually quit. You just can't do it. Join the king in his work. If you're having a hard time loving your enemies, right? Get off the throne. Who are you to judge them? Remember who you once were. Are you really any different? Do you really love? Because you don't act like it. This is sin. If you can't identify with your enemy, that's a sin. There's sin in your life that's preventing you from empathy. Why can't you rejoice? Why can't you join with them? Why can't you love them? Even though they hurt you. Even though they're taking away your rights. Even though they're threatening your loved ones. Even though they're cursing you. What's preventing you? from blessing them? What's preventing you from praying for them? What's preventing you from doing what you know is right? What is this pride and this arrogance? You are not their judge. Christ is their judge. He will judge. He will take care of it. He has enough justice for this world and enough peace and reconciliation as well. Trust him. Love your enemy, even if you think it's going to go bad. Just love your enemy. He called you to do it. Do you trust him? Well, you do what he's asked you to do. Until we actually believe and obey Jesus as our king, we're always going to be turning to all these other things to be our kings. We're always going to be finding something to give us life. We're going to see him as our savior, but we'll always find something else to rule us. If it's our work or our family or our ministry, we will find something to be our king until we see Jesus as our king.
Jesus invites us to build our life around him. Right? If you're wise, do what I say, which means you've built a life on Christ. I'm doing the work. I'm your foundation. You will have a career. You will have a family. You will have these, but it'll be on me. How much better? How much more life-giving? Jesus invites us to build our life on him. He invites us to find life, to find love, to find peace, to find hope. The call of Christ is simple. And there is great life and great freedom that's found in obedience. Many of us know this and have already experienced that freedom that comes from submission. When I finally say, I trust you. I'm convinced you're good. I will submit to you. Even though I know it's going to come at a great cost. Even though I don't know what the rewards of this will be. Oh, is there freedom that is found in obedience. Christ invites you to find that life to submit yourself to him, to believe in him, to trust him, and to love your neighbor. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the love that you have shown us. Lord, we thank you that your love is so great. It's so vast. Lord, we thank you that you really are the Lord of this universe, the King of heaven and earth. Lord, we thank you that you hold all things together. We thank you, Lord, that you are the judge of this world. Lord, we are thankful that every knee will bow before you. Every tongue will confess you. Lord, we know that you are in control. Lord, we know that this story of this world is taking a lot of twists and turns, but we know that you are the king and we know that you are coming in glory and we trust you. We recognize, Lord, that the life that you've called us to live is not easy. We recognize that loving people is hard and requires us to die to ourselves in a lot of ways and to give up a lot of things. But Lord, we trust you. And we trust your promise of life. We trust, we trust the love that you have shown us. Lord, we trust that love is truly greater than hatred, that love is greater than fear, that love casts out fear. Lord, we trust that the light is brighter than the darkness. And Lord, we trust that your name will be vindicated. Lord, strengthen us. Strengthen us as a church. Strengthen us as individuals and as families to trust you, to believe in you, to find that peace and hope and rest in you, to really see you for who you are, and to do what you've called us to do. We are a forgetful and scattered, selfish people. We're thankful, Lord, that you've reconciled that, that you've set us free so that we can follow you. So, Lord, continue to strengthen us. Continue to work in us through your spirit, giving us hearts that love. 
Lord, we trust you. In your name we pray. Amen.